0: Thank you for listening to this recording from Chestnut Hill Baptist Church. Today, Pastor David Site preaches from Isaiah, chapter 63, with a message called, He Comes from Edom. We hope you find this message valuable and enriching. Our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah, the 63rd chapter, verses 1 through 4, Isaiah 63, 1 through 4. This is the word of God to us this morning. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra? with his garment stained crimson. Who is this robed in splendor striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I speaking in righteousness mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I've trodden the winepress alone. From the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of my redemption has come. May God illuminate our hearts with this truth from his word this morning, thank you. Well, here we have in Isaiah, the Israelites were encircled by their enemies The Syrians on the the north, the Philistines along the maritime plain, and the Edomites on the south were a constant menace to the Israelites' peace, but the Edomites were their most troublesome foes. The old feud between Jacob and Esau has passed on from generation to generation with unabated force. It was the Edomites who most vigorously opposed their entrance into the promised land, you recall from the Pentateuch. It was the Edomites who by their allegiance with Babylon ultimately effected the exile of Israel. Herod who ordered the slaughter of the baby boys and Herod Antipas who was co-conspirator in the murder of our Messiah were both in uh, Edomians, Edomites, they were Israel's nearest foe, ever hovering on their borders. A, a Jew wandering into their territory was certain to be captured. And indeed, there was scarcely an hour when Israel felt secure, and we just heard of that just yesterday, as a matter of fact, in the in the news with Syria and Iran and a drone, and what took place there on that that border, so it's still the same today as it was back in the day that Isaiah was writing. So the prophet Isaiah looking down one of those gorges toward the Dead Sea saw a heroic figure drawing near upon the heights and he was glorious in apparel, our scripture tells us, traveling in the greatness of his his strength, and as he drew near, it was that his garments were red with blood, he observed, as one treading the, the wine press. Who is this, cries out the prophet, that comes from Edom with garments dyed in blood? It's an important question, I think, even for, for us today if we put this in the right context as it was for Israel in those olden days. Who is this mighty one whose figure was projected upon the foreground of history so long ago? And our sins dwell like the Edomites upon that border. That's the principle for us today. Our sins and our Savior crossing over to secure hope for us for eternity and ridding our sins, as this picture shows us from the prophet, who shall deliver us from our greatest foe, our sin. The mighty one draws near upon the heights for us, figuratively speaking, he was gone over into the land of Edom, the country of our sins, for he was trodden the winepress for us, and that's our companion, our Defender returning from his strife with the adversary, Satan, in our sin. This is the only begotten Son of God. Because we see he is our avenger. Christ, in this figure given to us by Isaiah, is our avenger. His garments are stained with the blood of his enemies and ours. I looked, he says, and there was none to help, and I wandered that there was no one to uphold, and therefore my own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury is upheld to me. God's fury upheld. And so I want you to observe a few things this morning. The the first is this, there is fury in this triumphant Son of God. If you read back through the verses that we, we spoke of this morning, this is not just the Savior, Jesus Christ, and all of his love for us. But it's our Savior, triumphant in his fury. But what fury is this? His name is, is love, yes, but it's also another name, and that other name is a consuming fire. And indeed, the capability of love involves the capacity for wrath. The man who is so complacent in love and in in tenderness as as that he cannot feel his most important heart, fury, wrath against crime and injustice. That man is a poor semblance of a true man. And so in like manner, the, the God who, loving the things that are pure and lovely and of good report, should not hate the opposite why not be worthy of our adoration? Nor is this an Old Testament concept. The God of the old economy is also the God of the new. The same yesterday, today, and, and forever, with whom is no variableness. As scripture says, neither shadow of turning. The indignation that flamed forth in the, the uh, imprecatory psalms, a uh, A big word that just simply means those Psalms that call down curses on the enemy. That indignation turned against the powers of of darkness is the same that flashed from the pure lips of Jesus when he denounced hypocrisy. When he cried, how shall ye escape the damnation of hell? So we stand under the, the opening of the sixth seal of the apocalypse. And in the book of Revelation, in that sixth chapter of Revelation, we're reminded that the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. It goes on to say the whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. It goes on the sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth, the princes, the the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains, and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits in the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. Yes, from the the wrath of that merciful one, the meek and lowly, Jesus, the the Lamb of God. But I want you to observe one other thing and that is this, this fury is a focused fury. It's a fury against sin and in all the universe there's this only thing that God hates. He hates it with an implacable fury. And why not? What has sin inflicted upon the earth? If a vandal, for example, had entered the the workshop of the sculptor Fladius in the 5th century BC and and broken into fragments his, his masterpiece, if you have ever seen it, the beautiful Apollo, do you think he would have stood by unmoved? And let the man destroy it into pieces. Sin has ruined God's masterpiece. It's uncrowned man. It's blinded him to the, the beauty of all spiritual things. It's corrupted his heart. Perverted his conscience. Stunted his intellect and, and paralyzed his will. It's placed the poison chalice at his lips, crying, drink and die. If God is indeed our Father, why should he not hate sin? And why should he not go over into the land of Edom to avenge the wrong which it's inflicted upon us? And so here is this rationale of the incarnation. It's God in the person of Jesus Christ going, over into the territory of the enemy to champion our cause. But observe one other thing here. The manifestation of fury against sin is holy in our behalf. It's for us. In the mid-1800s, the English were shut up in Lucknow, India. Men and women and children were starving there. The enemy was unspeakably cruel, history tells us. They would besieged the city, and over on the heights was heard the shrill sound of the bagpipes. Havelock with his brave Scotchmen were coming to the rescue, but alas, between Lachau and those hills were the, the sepoys, the soldiers, and what was to become of these, these soldiers? Well, the rescuers drew near, their swords flashed, their guns ready to bring death, and the road from those hills to the beleaguered city was covered with a stain of death. And so likewise, the only begotten Son of God comes to deliver us. But deliverance is not possible except by the overthrow of Edom. And so it comes about that his garments are stained with blood. The wine press, the wine press, the voice is from God. The floor of his fury is now to be trod. The sins of all nations are full to overflowing, and the blast of the avenger from heaven is blowing. In the red robe of Scourging, triumphant, he stands and blots out our sentence with blood in his hands. So the Avenger comes as our Savior. He avenges that he might save. And God so hated sin that he sent his only begotten Son to deliver us from the shame and the the bondage of that sin. As scripture writes, his name shall be called Jesus, because he shall save his people from their sins. And so as he draws near upon the heights of Edom, he's alone. He trod the winepress alone, and there was none with him, our scripture tells us, in Oriental lands, in ancient times in particular, when the time of producing wine had come, it was the occasion of great rejoicing, this harvest time, for near and far the neighbors came and encouraged one another by shouting and singing and treading out the grapes in the winepress. But not so, however, in the winepress of redemption. Our Savior trod alone As he entered the shadows of the olive grove, he said to his disciples, Stay here while I go ahead alone. And there was none with him when he put the purple cup of death to his lips. As he entered the judgment hall, they all forsook him and they fled. At Calvary, he was so utterly alone that he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The work was wholly his insomuch that any sinner who shall receive the benefit of his redemption must give him sole glory, saying, Not unto us, not unto us, but unto thy name. Then he comes in the greatness of his strength, the greatness of his strength, the stress of that mighty conflict in Edom. It hasn't wearied him at all. When the armies of the Civil War marched home, few among them had returned unscathed from battle. There were many who limped as they passed by. There were many who bore the scars of battle. There were scarcely one who walked in the fullness of his strength. But the strife of Calvary has not impaired the omnipotence of God's well-beloved Son. He's mighty to save. His step is firm. His arm is strong. The strength of his youth is upon him. But then also he speaks, and he speaks in righteousness. He speaks in righteousness in delivering us from Edom, his violated no principle of justice. The great problem was how shall God be just and yet be the justifier of the ungodly? How can He marry those two together? Well, He solves it by taking our place before the offended law. He paid the ransom. He expiated, that is to say he removed our offenses. The Bible says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And by his stripes, his stripes, we are healed. But how can the innocent suffer for the guilty? Well, it's done every day. The suffering of the innocent, for the guilty of the most common thing about us. Kings suffer for their subjects, parents for their their children. We're all suffering for others' sins, especially in society. It's a recognized principle in civil law, or else why are we taxed for the, the maintenance of prisons? We don't use them, but yet we're taxed for them. And who indeed has the right to object to this arrangement, well, there are three parties to the the covenant of grace: three parties. God, who is willing to send forth His Son to suffer and die in the sinner's behalf; the Son, who is willing to go, saying, "Here I am; I send me," and the sinner, the party of the third part. It remains only for him to give his consent by accepting the plan. And then who is there in all the universe who shall have the right to object to that? Then also he comes in glorious apparel. Our scripture verses tell us glorious apparel his blood-stained garments as he draws near all seen to be royal purple. In championing the cause of a sinful race he has established his right to rule over that race, because you see, the crowning day is coming. The earth shall yet be filled with the acclamations of heaven. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. See, we ourselves shall join in praising him who glorious with the victory won in the land of Edom sits upon the throne high and lifted up saying unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Now in this prophetic vision of the redeemer we have outlined the only plan which has ever been proposed for the deliverance of the human race, the only plan. There's none other name under heaven, scripture reminds us, given among men whereby we must be saved. That's it, through Jesus Christ who goes into Edom on our behalf, the mighty one, Appeals to us in our own behalf, offering the full benefits of the wine press for nothing. For nothing. He paid it all. In 1883, in Milwaukee, there was a tragic fire in a a place known as the Newell House. You can look it up. The, The history of it is still online. There was a young man who was awakened from his sleep on one of the upper floors to find every avenue of escape was shut off by the flames. He climbed to the the window ledge and holding by the sash, looked down and called for help, but the, the ladders of the fire department were too short. There was not a fireman, there was not a soul in the multitude that thronged the streets, who was not moved with the utmost desire to help, but no help was possible, and at length he hung from the ledge by his fingertips, and hung for a little while, and then he dropped, while those below covered their eyes, and all was over, and not less desperate than his condition when hanging from that ledge is the, the state of the sinner outside of the plan of salvation, but Jesus is mighty to save, you see, and to save to the uttermost all that will believe in him. The ladder of Christ's love is long enough to reach from beneath. The arms of his omnipotence is mighty enough to reach down from above. And the Bible says his promise is yes, And amen. So why then shall any be lost? Why should any be lost? His sacrifice is sufficient to cover all the record of the misspent past. His hands are stretched out still today. There's a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that he came into the world to save sinners. And this also is a faithful saying, that he that believeth on Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, hath everlasting life. Christ paid it all into Edom, his robe stained with blood, the blood that should have been ours because of our sin. He did it all but he stands ready as the begotten Son of God to give everlasting life. Why should any be lost? May God bless his own word to us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've come before your throne and opened your word and listened to the words that you preserve for us from the prophet Isaiah, We recognize that he who Isaiah saw was your very son coming from the hills, entering from the land of Edom, paying the price, his garments stained red as crimson, as one pressing out the wine in the winepress. He alone, he alone, So Heavenly Father, as we come today, we come with thankful hearts, those of us who know your Son, Jesus Christ, thankful that our sins are eradicated and that his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to forgive and for you to forget, and eternal life is ours because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. Not just joy in this life and knowing that we have your Holy Spirit within us, but joy in knowing of the assurance that we have of everlasting life. And so we ask the question, Heavenly Father, why should any be lost? And we ask that you use us, Lord, to the uttermost, with any and every ounce of power and strength that we have, use us, Lord, in this life as your tools that we might bring others before it's too late. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. For more information about Chestnut Hill Baptist Church or to subscribe to these audio messages via our podcast, visit our website at chestnuthillbaptist.org. You can also write to us at Chestnut Hill Baptist Church to Bethlehem Pike, Philadelphia, PA, 19118.